Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money, unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Welcome to our first episode of the Building Better Business podcast. To celebrate, we have a competition to thank our listeners. The first 50 people to subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify will get a £10 voucher to buy delicious hand-roasted coffee from Cafe Direct. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. Now, the UN recently reported that climate change is considered a code red for humanity and that the planet is heating up faster than previously thought. Our food systems account for over one third of global greenhouse gas emissions. But there's always hope. It's going to be forward thinking businesses that can lead us out of this. In this first episode, I'm speaking with the enlightening Bob Doherty. Bob is a professor of marketing at the University of York and also leads several high profile food systems research programs. As an academic, Bob has published extensively on social enterprise business models, including Cafe Direct, and is a trustee on the board of the Fairtrade Foundation. Bob will explain why the traditional pursuit of business profit is destructive and offer advice to all of us on what we can do in our daily lives to do better and really make a difference. Where do I start? I mean, you know, we can talk about business models, which you've, you've written extensively on and, and done loads of work with the university and, and beyond. Clearly, food systems, you're at the heart of some of the changes that are required in our food systems. And of course, you know, your relationship with fair trade has been so in- enduring and, and complete. One of the things I remember from when I went to the I Know Food workshops with you is really just to pick up on what is food resilience and why is it so important now for us all? The food system, if you take it, look at it globally, and even in the UK as well, it's got a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. But you think climate change, you think soil degradation, you think you know the way we exploit farmers in supply chains, dietary health. There's so many problems within our food system. Something we eat, we do three times a day, has created all these uh, negative consequences. And so resilience is really important because resilience is about the ability to, you know, against all these shocks and stresses like climate change is a great example. How is the food system in a position to be able to respond to those shocks? And also, how nimble is it to be able to reorientate itself and transform and find a better pathway that's better for human and planetary health? And I think business models like Cafe Direct are really, really important to shine a beacon on how you can create solutions to these problems because I think change is necessary. Change is really important. We have to think of not just mitigation, not just harm reduction, but actually transformative change. And I think that you know business models and organizations play a very important role in the food system. And so you do need these, these innovations 
these models that create a different way of doing business. And I think Cafe Direct is a great example of that. And that's why I've been a supporter. Even though you're competing in the coffee sector and the hot beverage sector, there are lessons to learn from your business model for businesses, you know, who are dealing in all sorts of different food sectors, whether it's fruit and vegetables, dairy, blah, blah, blah. There's so many examples of, in terms of principles that we can learn from. That's why I'm interested in, in business models like Cafe Direct, because they are an unusual phenomena. An unusual phenomena. Well, I, yeah, thank you, Bob. <laughs> I think I remember this from a, a lecture I did at, I think it's King's College, where one of the students said, don't you look forward to the day where all businesses, the norm is social enterprise. The, the, the norm is, you know, is a business model that focuses on people like smallholder farmers who are probably you know, facing the biggest impacts of, of climate change. Yeah? How, how far on the journey are we? I mean, I feel like we're making progress, but I also feel like if you're honest, there's such a long, long way to go. I mean, how far have we come in the last five years as a, I guess, a world on, the, on this issue? We've a long way to go. I mean, actually, if you look at the data, the indicators such as livelihoods, climate change impacts, soil degradation, biodiversity losses, they're all getting worse. And it's really, really important that we identify where we can intervene, what change we can create, what business models are out there that we can learn from. Obviously, the population of social enterprises is increasing. The number of B Corps are also increasing. So a number of corporations are thinking, you know, we've got to do business better. We've got, you know, these smaller social enterprises, they provide a mirror image of what we should be doing in business. Because if you think that it's not sustainable to extract resources and treat people unfairly, because how, how is that going to work out long term? It's, it's going to create serious problems in the food system which may, will mean that it's unsustainable and so we need more sustainable business models that actually create a food system that will survive long term and provide all the things it should be doing for different stakeholders right across it yeah no it's really interesting because i always think it's, it's not fair and it's not just and it's not right but also it's ultimately because it's not sustainable it's going to be destructive for all isn't it if we don't change and change authentically and, and i suppose rapidly as well so yeah Destructive is a good word, and we do need those destructive business models and disruptive policies as well at, at um, business and third sector and also government level to enable these business models to thrive. You've written um, a number of papers in the area of business model, and you've shone a light on Cafe Direct twice um, at the end of the 2000s and then in 2018-19. And um, you've written quite eloquently, in my view, about the challenges that these kind of business models face, a hybrid business model. Give us a, give us a feel for that kind of challenge, that tension that we, we face, because most businesses are still, you know, they've got profit primacy and they're trying to make money for a limited number of shareholders. Uh, bring that challenge to life for me. I think what people don't realise, you know, if you're a consumer or a shopper, is how competitive these markets are. I mean, I spent five years working in, in chocolate, which is similar. These markets, that supermarket shelf, it's just not easy. It's such a challenge to, to be able to occupy a position with your product on that supermarket shelf. And that success can never be underestimated. And to maintain that position on the shelf in the supermarket is really, really difficult. And people should never underestimate that. So if you look at your competitors... For me, it's like a David against Goliath story <laughs> because you're a social enterprise, you're competing against these. These corporates are, they employ more people in North London than you do in the whole entire world. You are 
not only an experienced marketing practitioner, but also, you know, your field of academic expertise was built in, in, in marketing. Do you see as, as advice for a social enterprise? Because I think certainly in my time with Cafe Duet, because you believe in a purpose, it's sometimes a real challenge to get the marketing just right. What, mm. what, what do you think is the, is the advice to a social enterprise or a business trying to maintain their purpose but compete so well against commercial players? You know, a lot of people and, and academics are also guilty of this. You know, you have a dual mission. You know, your primary mission is social and environmental, but you trade to fulfill, you know, in a commercial competitive sector to fulfill that mission. And some people think they are in tension with each other. You know, that one, you know, you, you compensate commercial success you know, that dilutes your social kind of purpose. But actually, you have designed a business model that the more successful you are in terms of trading and that commercial success with the brand, the more successful you are in delivering that social and environmental impact. That's a design feature of your business model. And I think a lot of social enterprises can learn from that, that actually you have to be just as professional, if not more, than your corporate competitors. You have to get the brand just right on the shelf you know, the, even the aesthetics of the brand, the quality of the coffee, and having that relationships, you know, that really uh, close relationships with producers means that they will give you the best coffee. You know, that's a no-brainer. You know, people who, who, who are into kind of profit maximization don't always get that, that actually having that relationship and, and investing your profit in those social and environmental programs with producers on the ground whether it's climate change adaptation, whether it's improving livelihoods, just means that you will always be in a position to source the best quality coffee. It's difficult to put a value on that as a, as a business, but you have managed to achieve that. And I was in Entebbe in 2013, lucky enough to go to Uganda to one of your producer conferences. And one of the producer leaders who's part of Producers Direct, your... Yeah, far, the farmer-led, farmer-owned charity, yeah. Yeah. He said, we can contract with lots of different coffee buyers, but we always fulfill our contract with Cafe Direct because we have a resilient relationship with them. And that's a testament to you, really, and the business in creating that kind of partnership with growers who sometimes are very sceptical of buyers. So, uh, yeah, that, that would be my insight on that. I've enjoyed coming up to York and doing the lectures for your MBA programme, although now I've had to pass that on to Chris Thompson, who does that with great enthusiasm and, and so on and so forth. Personally, I love spending time with academics and with, with students, because I think if we can help shape the, the way people think and feel and believe at university and, and you know earlier in life, we can shape the, the future of, um, of business. What's the best thing for business to do to help with academia to help build themselves better businesses, but also to help influence the future of employees, I suppose. Obviously, you you do probably do more than most. We try to show students better ways of doing business, you know, and business models that they can learn from that are unique. And you've risen to that challenge and annually come and give a, a guest lecture uh, to our students. And it's an international group of students. It's not just a UK group. Again, you can't put a value on that. And I think academics increasingly need to do more collaboration with industry, particularly around research programs, because if you're trying to create change, 
you can't just study something from the outside. You've got to get in and get your hands dirty as an academic and work with businesses, you know, in, in on interventions around change. And you've uh, always, you know, I think you've always welcomed me in to learn and and to report and to and to suggest and challenge. And I think increasingly businesses are doing that because they see a value. And academics also have to see the value. Uh, so it's a two-way thing. It's like a knowledge exchange. It's not just a one-way thing, I think. And also, you have to be respectful as an academic working with business because you have to understand it. You, you know, you have to keep up to date. You have to, you know, report back on some of your findings. And we've done that. You know, we've come to you on your staff lunch meetings and we've reported back what we found about your business, some of it positive, some of it, that you know, areas for development. So I think that business academic interface is so important if we're going to shine a light on some of the problems but also some of the solutions of which social enterprises are an obvious solution in a world where profit maximization has taken over as a business ethos you know that can't continue it's too destructive and so we do need i mean i always say that social enterprises provide diversity in the free market and more choice for shoppers and consumers and that's really important yeah, no, I think um, certainly as a business um, person, I I find working with academics just opens your mind out. It, it you know you're you're working operationally in a framework, and it works for the business person as well. So well, I think it's a two way thing. I mean, uh, I I train academics in how to interact with business because you know some of the academics have done done a degree, done a done a master's, done a PhD. And then they start to study businesses. They never actually worked in a business. I said to you know, academics that you need to be respectful of people's time. You know, there's much to learn here. It's like a laboratory, so you have to treat it as a, as a kind of two way two way process. And hopefully, my academics, my team are, are, are good at working with businesses. You're right. It, it needs different skills, doesn't it, to get out of our different environments and maximise the, the benefit of working together. I wasn't around at the time, but um, I'm a huge fan of crowdfunding and I've you know watched and done a number of crowdfunds over, the t- over my time. But in 2004, Cafe Direct effectively did crowdfunding before it existed in its um, public offering. How significant was it to actually have a, a social enterprise and a pioneer like Cafe Direct changing the way um, consumers can get engaged in business. Yeah, I think that was an historic moment for social enterprise and for Cafe Direct because you're quite right. You could have easily called it crowdfunding and you would have been the you would have been the first <laughs> to do that. I mean, for me, I bought shares in Cafe Direct at the time. I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be part of the journey. I wanted to be part of the the development, you know, the next next phase if you will. And so I think that was really important. And my friends also bought shares. And so it was like a network. And and that also gives you a voice as well mm-hmm. in the in yeah. the business. So I, I really look forward to the annual general meetings, talking to producers, talking to the staff uh, team, learning about the performance, learning about how you're doing, the challenges of the market. It was an important moment. It was an historic moment. And I think other social enterprises have learned from that. They're doing that on different scales. And I think the great advantage of a social enterprise is that because of its social mission, it's able to bring along a greater diversity of uh, investment. So not only crowdfunding, share offering, 
but it's able they're able to collaborate to get grants from government grants from uh, social investors you know more patient capital more long term uh, thinking whereas private sector organizations really struggle to do that because they don't have the legitimacy or the credibility to bring in that kind of funding so i think you've demonstrated the variety of investment uh, sources for social enterprises i love the way you use the word legitimacy because for me it's great to have your mission brought to life through your ownership so to have producer shareholders and consumer shareholders and um, other ethical bodies working alongside you it really brings to life the purpose doesn't it it cements it and it gives it legitimacy as you say i think more and more as people recognize they need to demonstrate purpose more and more i think they're doing that without enough depth and i think if you can make your ownership structure fit with that. It really gives it the credibility, as you say, Bolt, and that's a really important point. I mean, I always talk to, whether I'm in the pub or in the restaurant, and people ask me, what's different about Cafe Direct? What's different about other social enterprises? I say, well, look at their ownership structure. The farmers are owners. You can see the light, you know, the the kind of uh, spark and, and the realisation and the believability of that, uh, where you're actually working as partners, not treating farmers as some actor in the supply chain further down the supply chain you're actually their business partners learning about the market and you're learning about the challenges of uh, producing crops in in a very tough environment as you say it shines a light and it gives you real understanding of the social and environmental issues that are going to make a difference to a a resilient world as as you said earlier and that's also more believable more believable with funders so if you're able to tell the stories of the challenges from the producers, you know, with the producer's perspective, that's very powerful when you're dealing with investors. They're looking long-term. If you take climate change as an example, and you take COP26 coming up in, in the UK in, in November, you know, it shines a light on the need to invest in solutions to these kind of challenges. The question people sometimes ask me when they put me on these podcasts is, if you could go back, what advice would you give to your younger self about the work you've been trying to do and, and the achievements you ought to make? That's a great question. Yeah, that's why I hate it every time they ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, funnily enough, after I graduated in agriculture, I went to do voluntary service overseas when I was 22 uh, in Tanzania. I worked in an agricultural college for several years and when I came back, I actually applied to work for Cafe Direct. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you wouldn't know that because that's quite a long time ago. <laughs> it was like 19, 1992, 1990. Well, it was right at the start of Cafe Direct. So I actually did a handwritten letter uh, and I did it too quickly. So my, my probably my advice to myself would have been to do a much better job at the application. And maybe, uh, maybe I could have worked for Cafe Direct at some point. I worked in the in the private sector, in the corporate sector for 10 years and then just studied a master's and then worked for Divine Chocolate for five years. So I worked with Cafe Direct very closely then. And actually it was my favourite ever job working for Divine just because every day you're doing something fulfilling. You don't, you don't really care about the salary. It's the job satisfaction and the change that you're making. So I will probably say to my, I'd say to my son, do something that you're passionate about. Uh, you know, work yeah. in something that you're passionate about because it's more fulfilling, it's more better for you, better for your mental health, and it's also better for the world. So that's probably the advice. I would have, should have done a much better application. 
I think um, I was because I was going to say uh, your, your advice of you know there are moments when you need to really take your time over it to get it right is a good one. But I think yeah. the bigger piece of advice, which is find something that you've got passion about and that delivers yeah. meaning, because work is so different, isn't it? When you have that, it's just astonishing, and it takes yeah. us. You know, it, it took me you know twenty five years to get to that, and it's just it, it's it's liberating, isn't it? it really is. It is liberating, but it's also very holistic. I've worked very, very hard for some entrepreneurs in the private sector who were only interested about profit maximization at any cost. Sometimes you do things that you feel really guilty about, but actually working for Divine restored my faith in, in business. You can't put a value on that. The importance of the role in business in terms of getting ourselves to resilient food and, and, and other resilient supply chains and ultimately getting the world back into balance. What's the one piece of advice to business owners about that? Because there's so many different things to navigate and it's quite complicated. But what would be the one piece of advice from you, Bob? Yeah, it's to invest your profits in the long term. We need to get away from this having to provide a, you know, an increasing shareholder dividend every year. Or we make the farmers and the supply chain shareholders that's the other that's the other route it's very extractive the way that business models are organized at the moment and as you said earlier quite destructive if you look at the the damage we've done to the world we've done that damage human beings and we've done it a lot largely through through business models we need to change that way that we view profit as investment in the long term in sustainability in the supply chain and b corps social enterprises do shine a mirror image to corporations that they need to behave better it's very wise to think of the the long term i think we we have got to the point now where our rampant pursuit of the short term is endangering the long term just too dramatically isn't it so no it's a really really excellent piece of advice i mean soil is a great example it's a lost lost topic often it is the substrate for growing the food that we eat but we continually are extractive about it and our soil health, I mean, you don't look at the UK, it's degraded significantly over a long period of time and that's your substrate, yeah. your building block to to producing the food that we eat and, and that's just a, for me. I think the American president, Franklin de Roosevelt, said in 1947 that a nation that you know doesn't look after its soil destroys itself. We have heard this for a long, long time, haven't we? Yeah. The other thing is, you know, just for listeners and for all of us, what in our daily lives can we do to make a difference? My view would be, you know, make sure you choose the right business that you buy from and that you you buy from businesses that are making a difference. What else can we do? That consumer citizenship is really important. Um, Advocacy is still important, whether that's social media or whether that's still, you know, writing to your supermarket saying you're not stocking this product anymore. It's also through education. We can do a lot through education. We can also invest. You know, if we're making an investment, what what is that investment being used for? So I think in all ways that we live and we purchase and we communicate with people, we can do a lot more. And I think one of the unusual things about social enterprises is that they not only do business well, and their purpose and they they make social positive contribution to social environmental change, they also campaign. Mm, yes, I, I still campaign for fair trade, and uh, every year uh, I also campaign for uh, getting involved in initiatives on climate change. You know, the more people that do that, the better. But social enterprises—that's one of their unique, unique aspects—is that they still are very, very good at advocacy and campaigning, and and that does change change hearts and minds.
how important was the early adoption of fair trade by a number of brands in terms of that whole movement? Because, you know, from our point of view, I like to believe that the impact is is well beyond the company in terms of the growth of the movement. But how important w- was it for brands like Divine and Cafe Direct to adopt and actively p- be part of the fair trade movement? I mean, seeing fair trade in the mainstream was really important because up, up to that point, historically, fair trade products had been mainly located in these set of will shops across Europe, about 4,000 of them, which are very niche I mean, they're lovely, and there's a great network, and there's some fantastic products sold through through the world shops. But it's not where people buy coffee. It's not where people buy their chocolate. They mainly buy those products in supermarkets. So to actually get fair trade into the mainstream and the pioneers to do that, when I say the mainstream, I mean supermarket retail. Unfortunately, in the UK, we buy shoppers buy a lot of their food and hot beverages and and other products in the supermarkets. And so you are one of the pioneers in the UK, the initial pioneer that got fair trade brands into the supermarket. I remember, you know, that that the famous story of getting the Cafe Direct into the Safeway store in Morningside in Edinburgh. That was a real breakthrough because it's not a given that you can get your product into store. And it was those campaigners outside who persuaded that particular supermarket to stock uh, Cafe Direct in the early days. And that was a real breakthrough. People can't put, you can't put really a value on that because it was an historic moment. And, you know, it raises the awareness. People see it. People see the mark. People see the brand. People think, oh, there's another choice. You know, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to read about it and I'm going to buy that. And so you can't put a value on that breakthrough. When I got my first listing, in a supermarket for Divine Chocolate, I had to write 22 letters to the buyer. It was such an important step and it's created that kind of platform. And also then the corporates had to look and listen and had to take notes because they were you, you were competing in their space on the supermarket shelf. And they then looked and thought, well, we need to change our behavior. The rest is history. You know, in the UK, we sell over two billion pounds now of fair trade products. It's just incredible. It's just it's just remarkable, isn't it, that the food and drink that we all consume and take for granted to an extent comes from small families in remote locations working their hardest to create products that they, they, they love and they have great pride and passion for. And yet, through the, the current uh, food systems, a lot of that is lost, isn't it, really, in terms of um, us realising uh, how meaningful that is. It's a good place to finish on, but actually what people don't realise is that if you take the number of farmers in the world, it's 570 million farmers, 460 million of those farmers are actually smallholders, and people just forget that. And they actually are neglected in, in research as well. There's a really interesting article in Nature in November saying that we need to, you know, in a lot of research done on food, smallholders are neglected. Uh, it's very much about the kind of main, you know, the big farms, and, uh, and so we do need to change that. Thank you, Bob. I mean, what a what a pleasure! It's always wonderful to speak with you and listen to everything you have to say. Next week, we've got a trailblazer, a man who traded directly with coffee growers in the developing world for the very first time back in the early 1990s. The wonderful Richard Hyde. We'll hear of adventures exploring far-flung countries to find the very best coffee beans. How directly trading at fair prices has had widespread impact, not only on those growing communities, but more broadly in the whole country. 
in which Richard has explored, and how, by working together, the coffee has just got better and better. That's next week on Building Better Business. Join us then. Another one.